Blog Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. Hi, welcome to Kudzu Vine for December 16th, 2018. I'm your host, David McLaughlin. Joining me as always, welcome Catherine Smith. Greetings from Atlanta. And welcome Tim Shiflett. Uh, Tim, are you still there with us? Yes, sir. Uh, yeah, you're, you're breaking up a little bit, Tim. Um, just, just let's keep working on it. But Tim Shiflett's also with us. Um, tonight, we're real excited about the show. Author of many, many books, including his latest book, House of Trump, House of Putin, Craig Unger is going to be our guest. He's going to come on and talk about uh, what he's learned about Donald Trump and his ties to Russia, not just Vladimir Putin, but other things too. So he'll come on in the show on the show about Ten minutes from now, but we got other things to talk about, including um, Friday, seemingly nights, not even afternoons news, that um, the American Health Care Act, or, or Affordable Health Care Act, had been um, put in somewhat jeopardy, I guess, or ruled against in a Texas federal court, although it's not binding at this point, but it was kind of a, it certainly, I think, gave it new life the repeal effort on the Republican side, um, even if it's no more than just this ruling. Catherine, were you kind of surprised that this even came up? I, well, I think we all knew it was coming, but um, I guess we thought it might be delayed uh, maybe partly because it seems to be such an important issue and and this uh, seems to be you know, it's, it, it hurts the overall uh, act, but also at a time when people are uh, embracing uh, the Affordable Care Act. So I was a little surprised that the, that the decision came down, but I think we were all expecting something to happen. Well, well Tim, um, I know that a few, well, at least a year ago, uh, they tried to repeal it. And it was unsuccessful. That was with a complete Republican control. They couldn't uh, repeal it. And now the Democrats are going to take control in less than a month uh, of the House of Representatives. So it just – I mean, I just wasn't expecting anything more, although this was a judicial ruling instead. Uh, what are your thoughts? Well, they're not going to stop. You know, the detractors of, of this you know, law are just simply not going to stop. Uh they they didn't even get the hint during the election. They seemed to never learn. This issue was front and center, and they they frankly lost on this issue. Uh, of course, this is a this is a right wing judge that made this ruling, and like everyone else, uh, judges bring their politics to the table. Uh, and it, you know, it may go all the way to the Supreme Court. Uh, I imagine that they will keep doing this uh, in the hopes that one day they'll just strike it down in the courts because they're not going to be able to do it legislatively. No, and, and of course, there's so many political ramifications of this, but let's say it does get struck down. And we have another uh, phase of American history that, uh, you know, where the health care issue has not been dealt with. We're talking about going back to um, Franklin Roosevelt and Harry Truman's administrations, Richard Nixon's administrations, somebody trying to deal with the health care system, and nothing significant really ever got done. And I think a lot of folks kind of felt that what Barack Obama did was a – Step on a road by by no means was this bill, you know, the be all end all fix um, for this health care issue. But it was a step in the right direction. 
if that got wiped away, Catherine, um, what would it say to particularly people kind of on the edge that depend on um, some type of, you know, government assistance or, or some kind of government intervention for their health care? Well, it would be a big blow, and um, it would have a pretty incredible economic, uh, a pretty incredible economic impact as well, because we know that healthcare spending is a huge piece of many uh, of uninsured families' uh, you know annual expenses. So, um, and if uh, if millions of people were then without without the coverage of Obamacare or America or uh, wh- however you want to call it. Uh, I, I mean, I think it would be pretty devastating to a lot of those families and individuals, but I also think yeah, it, would have a, it would have a, a, an amazing impact on the health insurance companies and the healthcare providers as well. So I imagine uh, nobody, nobody wins except the, you know, people who, think it's unconstitutional. <laughs> well, and Catherine, you mentioned something about the economy. This ruling, or this, you know, the ruling decision came out, stock market closed. Um, do you get any sense that um, this will directly impact the stock market, the news, or because they've had the weekend, then people will be kind of take a wait-and-see attitude, and we won't see anything in the stock market on Monday? Oh, I'm not sure. I haven't really thought about its impact on the stock market, but um, it wouldn't surprise me if it did have an impact. Yeah, and to me, that's one of the less important things. I was thinking about long-term, long-term impact. Yeah, but but I mean, people, some of these folks that predict these things, uh, they have to plan for all options. Well, um, Tim, there's so many political angles, but one kind of told me about like how excited the Republicans are about this. Chris Carr, the Attorney General of Georgia, um, I don't think he's the most conservative member of the Republican Party either in our state or nationally by any means. He's not the you know number one Tea Party advocate. He you know um, sent out this press release talking you know what great news this was for Georgians and that you know Georgia had been uh, part of the effort to try to get this uh, you know the Affordable Health Care Act repealed. Um, did, was that kind of an indication to you about how pretty much maybe not every single Republican, but the totality of the Republican Party views um, health care in our country? Well, it's how they view anything Barack Obama did. Let, let's put it that way. Anything he did, uh, uh, they want to wipe out Trump. I think Trump uh, – probably uh, hit a nerve with all of them on that. This isn't a great health care um, law. This is Barack Obama's law, and we've got he, – he's just about ruined this country, and we've got to go back, and we've got to blah, 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 blah. Uh, you know, they're going to find out, though. They just, didn't they just see what just happened in the election? With this issue coming front and center, and they took a pasting all over the country. They, they didn't see that. And I'll tell you why that is. This law directly affects about 60 million people. If this ruling's allowed to stand, millions of people would be negatively impacted. Millions would be unable to purchase any insurance uh, because of price. Millions would be kicked out of Medicaid. A lot of young adults would be removed from their parents' insurance, and that was a very popular item in Obamacare. Uh, People with pre-existing conditions, I guess they'd be out of luck again. Uh, Even Republicans were running on protecting people with pre-existing conditions. Uh, uh, Medicare recipients, I'm sure, will get hit with higher premiums. Uh, and those people with pre-existing conditions, there's something like 52 million of them. Uh, you know the real kicker, guys. A lot of these people voted for Trump. So, in essence, they have voted to cut their own throats. And, and then they wonder why their lives don't improve. 
like I said about these Republicans, they never seem to learn. I mean, you can beat them in an election handily with an issue. I mean, we 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 got more than nine million votes than they did in in these congressional elections around the country. So record, it was the biggest Democratic win since 1974. And Catherine, don't you think that health care was a major, major, major part of that? Absolutely, I think. Uh... Healthcare is a big concern to a lot of what we often refer to as the working poor and the middle class. Um, and I think it, I think it's hard for um, some, many uh, Republicans, if they're in a privileged and um, and uh, corporate culture, that they to understand. The idea of not having health care. Hi, this is Craig Unger. Sorry, I can't take your call right now. Please leave a message, and I'll get back to you as soon as I can. Thank you. David, did you know that you're on the air with that? I don't think David's on the air, (laughs) to be honest with you. Um, But um, but I I do think it's it's, um, a really good example of uh, privilege versus lack of privilege. I think that that's uh, a, a big piece of how why so many uh, Republicans, especially in elected office, don't understand the importance of the um, Affordable Health Care Act. That, I really think that's a big piece of it. Well, you know, they're, you know, people laugh at us if, if, if we say that they're the party of the rich and big business, but they are, and they've always have been. And no matter what Trump or anyone else says, the Democrats are the party of the working people of this country, and they proved it with their legislation. I defy anyone on the other side to name me one piece of landmark legislation that the Republicans have passed for the working people of this country. I want to hear all about it. They, you know, the funny thing, though, about this Affordable Care Act is it originated with, with the Heritage Foundation. Right, that, that exactly. This was, and, and, and uh, you know, Mitt Romney used a version of it in Massachusetts, but because Barack Obama got this signature law pushed through Congress, therefore they must be against it just because it doesn't matter if it was good or not. It's got to be bad right. because it was him. And and they're not understanding, though, that so many parts of this law are popular with people. This thing with pre-existing conditions, um, this thing helping out people with their prescriptions in, in Medicaid, uh, young adults the, being think, able to – Yeah, that's ahead. a big one. That's a big one, for especially for people who have been working you know, much of their lives to afford for their children to go to college. And, uh-huh. And – and now that being able to put, keep them on their insurance gives them just a little bit more um, leeway to afford that college, right? I mean, it's like we don't understand what a, a few hundred dollars uh, – I mean, we I understand, but I think a lot of our um, leadership doesn't understand what that few hundred dollars or, or you know, a few thousand dollars a year means to a family that's trying to put a child through college. It's a big right. deal. And uh, right. and I, I think I think it's just hard for them to you know if you're making hundreds of thousands of or millions of dollars a year you don't think about that you know that's just you know uh, yeah pocket change to them and something I find so frustrating is if we compared it to two other issues and the way the Republicans approach it um, you know like education um, you know their their ideas vouchers. Our idea is more public education, but then they at least have seemingly a plan. Or in the case of the environment, they say there's no problem. Well, with healthcare, 
the Republicans, I guess they know they have to admit that the explosion of health care costs and millions of people not having coverage is a problem, so they can't treat it like the environment and just say there is no problem. But then they don't have a separate solution that's different than the Democrats. Uh, you know, you can say it's right or it's wrong, but they don't have a solution. It's kind of like they just need to come clean and be honest. Access to health care is for folks at a certain economic line and below, and that's not our base. Therefore, we don't care because it would get in the way of us providing tax cuts, which is our number one um, priority. And if they would be honest about it, we could still think they're wrong, but then voters would at least know where they stand. And then you could see, well, if they're going to be that honest, those voters in West Virginia, those voters in Kentucky and other places, a lot of places in rural America that um, have switched over to the Republican Party – when it got down to health care coverage and, and taking care of diabetes and taking care of, um, you know, some drug drug issues, how would they feel about it then with that honesty? I mean, Tim, do you kind of see where I'm trying to frame it here? Yeah, but on the other hand, uh, it goes back to something that, that you know, we, we've talked about a lot before. These people are voting to cut their own throats. And if you cut your own throat, well, the guy that wanted to cut your throat's just going to stand there and watch you do it. I mean, it, it's it, this is an issue where they can do whatever they want to do with it, and they get your vote anyway. When you're voting against your own self-interest, and then you wonder why your self-interest are not served, What's wrong with we have one of the most ignorant voting electorates on this planet? We have to. I mean, why would a person who is on Obamacare or on Medicaid or something, why would they vote for these Republicans when the very candidates they're voting for are saying right on television Hey, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm against this. I'm against the Affordable Care Act. It's bad for America. Socialized medicine. Blah 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 blah. blah. And I just, you know, what? Why do you talk to people about this if you can't reason with them and make them see that they are harming themselves by the way that they vote? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, that's what at least if people, you know, the Republicans were honest, um, people would see. Now, somebody mentioned that this ruling came out prior to um, the, or I'm, I'm sorry, it came out after the election, and the judge could have announced the ruling before the election. My question to, to first to you, Catherine, and then Tim, you can answer it, is I could possibly see two elections, federal elections, changing because of this. And that might have been Florida Senate, and that might have been Georgia 7. Other than those two – I'm sorry, Georgia – yeah, Georgia 7, I was right. Other than those two close races that went Republican, if this would have been announced, let's say, October 20th, do you think anything else might have flipped, or do you even think those would have flipped? Hmm, I, I don't – I'm not sure that your average voter – pays that much attention to these kind of judicial um, decisions. So it would have had to, it would have been uh, beholden on the candidates to, you know, sort of try to explain it. And that might've been a little tricky at that late a date, but uh, it's really always hard to say, but it would have, it would certainly would have been a more, it would have been interesting to see what that impact would have been. And I don't also think it would be more, um, I mean, you have to wonder if it was intentional to hold off until after the elections were done. You know, yeah, you that's what sort of wonder. Think. Yeah, that he purposely oh. waited until after the elections. And I only mentioned those two races because they were so close, and they did go. Yeah, Republican. they were so close. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess in theory you could say, oh, well, it could have gone the other way, and a close race could have flipped back to the uh, Republican Party, like say Mia Love's race. I wouldn't see the political impetus for that. Tim, what do you think? 
Uh, well, I, I don't think it would have made that much difference because what you would have seen is you would have seen a bunch of Republican candidates in righteous indignation standing <laughs> up with their hands over their hearts and saying, my goodness, how, did that, how could that judge do that to all these poor people when we're trying our best to protect your health care? La-dee-da-dee-da-dee. And you know what? I, I, I think their voters would have, would have bought that uh, per, pretty much because I believe those that were going to get beat on account of this issue, that they got beat. And I don't think anything would have affected it or made it worse. And you're probably right, David. I can't think of two other races where it would have made much difference. Of uh, The Florida race, though, maybe 10,000 votes in the lot. And we just saw, what, about 400 votes separate the two candidates in the seventh. Maybe, maybe it would have swung that one to us too. Although the Florida race would have been a sweet one to win, wouldn't it? Yeah, I mean, it wouldn't do it. It wouldn't. Neither race would make a difference in um, the makeup of the House or Senate as far as like who controls it. But it would long mm-hmm. term, as Fuller suggesting, this needs to be a building process. Uh, particularly in the Senate where you need to pick up a few seats um, every time to then retake the Senate. Um, or, or I guess in the Republicans' uh, case, they need to, of course, try to retake the back of the House, so they need to uh, pick up seats every time. Well, um, well guys, let's switch gears. Um, guest issues hadn't happened yet. Uh, too long a story to talk about now. Um, but let's go ahead and talk about our next topic we had planned and that was about um, Georgia and the U.S. Senate race here, you know, talking about building on that. If you look at the Senate map of targets, it's not a lot of seats. And I think Maine is going to be a, a big Democratic target, probably yeah. Colorado. And then after those two, um, Georgia could be the third largest target. Now, we talked about Stacey Abrams. We said, you know, she probably gets first-right refusal in the Democratic primary process, um, the way that she was able to get you know a lot of new voters out and ran so close. Um, we think that she would be a, a solid candidate, if not the best candidate. But we'll, um, in this scenario, we're going to assume she does not run, and each of us have two or three candidates that we think would be plausible nominees to go against David Perdue. Um, Tim, I'm going to let you – I think would it, do you all want to go and tell all three of yours or all two of yours, or do you want to go one at a time, or, or what's the best way to do it, you think, Tim? All right. You're, you're the host. You tell me. I'm ready either way. Well, let's do it this way. Let's try this. Tim, you tell me one. I'll tell one. We'll let Catherine tell one, and then we'll go back around. Um, I'm assuming you have three, and – I almost had four, but I'm more restricted to three, uh, and I know Catherine has two. So, Tim, give us one. Uh, let me just pick one out here, uh, one that, that perhaps y'all y'all may or may not have, but, but I, I, I'll start with my third choice, uh, and that is uh, Reverend Raphael Warnock from uh, Ebenezer Baptist Church. Uh, he has not ruled out the possibility of running in this race. He is very articulate, a, ter- a terrific speaker. Uh, uh, the idea being with his candidacy that he could have a very excited African-American base on the order of excitement that Stacey Abrams produced. Uh, and it would be even larger because it's presidential election. Um, I don't think he could be attacked on religious uh, <laughs> reasons, even though you know somebody might try. Uh, he certainly would wear the mantra of an outsider. Uh, if you watch him on. TV or on videos, very attractive-looking uh, possible candidate. So that there's one for me. 
Okay, I didn't have him on my list. Um, Catherine, did you have him on yours, by the way? And I guess if we all I have did, somebody, we ought to talk about them together. I did not have him on did, my list, but an excellent idea. Thank you, Tim. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and that's and, and good. I hope we have some unique choices so we don't have just the same three or four people. Um, okay, one of my next ones, and I'm not going to rank order anybody, um, but I just had three names. And like I said, I almost had a fourth one, which we'll see how time uh, goes. And Stacey Evans lost to Stacey Abrams, um, she, and she ran a campaign to where – it wasn't a really vicious campaign either way, and she was quick to endorse. And that kind of told you that she wanted to keep her political options open. Now, I've heard that people are talking about her running for CEO or uh, county commission chair of Cobb County, which people think is going to go into Democratic hands sometime soon. And as far as a long-term situation, that might actually be a better way to build a career. But if, if you know, it wasn't going to be a million people running and it was going to be kind of like – you run for the nomination, you get it. Uh, I think that um, a lot of Stacey Abrams' uh, core supporters would probably support Stacey Evans because she wasn't, uh, you know, very contentious. And we did know she had that really good bio video that didn't get out there. But your bio is your bio. If you're born with that bio, talking about early on in your life, and and you you'll have it till you're 80. I mean, you can't take that away from somebody. Somebody's early story. So she'd still have that going for. Her. So that's just. Uh, one of my names, Catherine. One of yours. I'm, I don't have mine in order either. But uh, Scott Holcomb, who's a state representative, um, he's been serving for eight years. Um, he's a former JAG officer in the Army. I guess I don't know how those things work. And um, he's very well respected on both sides of the aisle. He's carried some really important legislation, including the rape kit legislation he's very interested in international and um foreign affairs very well educated um i would i would call him i wouldn't call him crazy liberal but he does have very progressive ideas he's very approachable um young enough to uh attract you know young voters but um solid enough to you know keep the older Democrats happy. Um, and again, I think probably could attract a, a, certainly some um, independent voters and maybe some Republicans. He's very well respected. Um, so that's mine, one of mine. Yeah, and, and that is an interesting uh, point you bring up, Catherine, is, you know, there were counties where Stacey Abrams didn't run as well as previous Democrats um, that didn't do as well as her statewide in some of these rural counties, and uh, with his military background, could he do a little better and then still hold uh, all those gains Stacey Abrams made? Um, that could be the, the winning formula if somebody can put those two things together, including Stacey Abrams and the, could do that. Uh, one I mean, more, she could figure out to do that. Yeah. One more Catherine? thing about Scott, uh, Scott, about Scott Holcomb. He did run for Secretary of State. It was a long time ago, and he wasn't he didn't do very well, but he, I think he does understand uh, what it means to run statewide, which not everybody does. Yeah, a lot of fundraising, um, which yeah. is, is something important, too. Uh, Tim? Okay, let me go in a completely different direction here with the type of person I'm going to name, and I'd like to bring up the name of John Barrett. Um, now, uh, of course, he's a very different type of candidate from my first choice that yes, I gave you a minute is. ago. He, uh, the angle we're looking for here with him is electability. He, he, there's a very good case to be made that he ran better than any statewide Democrat ran this year. Uh, he came within a whisker. Of, of being uh, the only statewide Democrat to be elected. Um, he is um, moderate to conservative on many issues, but the angle here is that the presidential race 
will draw out excited Democrats to vote against Donald Trump in the suburbs and the metro area. And he, unlike many other candidates, might appeal to enough rural voters in Georgia uh, to combine that vote with the massive Democratic vote in the metro area pale him to a win. He's also a very attractive-looking candidate in person um, and on television, carries himself very well. Uh, uh, Money, raising money would not be much of a problem for him. And so there's there's that choice. Yeah, and I do think this, and is that John Barrow? I get the sense that a lot of his vote that he got in some of these emerging Democratic counties, Stacey Abrams kind of lifted his vote, but he did run better in those rural counties. So the trick is, who can be that person to get out that vote in Cab, Clayton, Gwinnett, Fulton, and then still run better? And some of these smaller counties, it's figuring those two things out with the same candidate that's going to be the trick. And I kind of have a feeling that he, like I said, he had his boat lifted by somebody else. Catherine, any thoughts on John Barrow? Oh, I just, no, I, I, I just, he really a Democrat. <laughs> and Oh, I definitely, he's just a Democrat from, Ten years ago, more so than maybe today. Yeah, he's a, yeah. Um, I don't. I I, I I don't have any comment on it. Yeah, the I the category. You know, he he's let let me qualify something. He's not my first choice by any stretch of the imagination either, uh, politically speaking. But but the category is kindly. We're we're, we're kind of backed in a corner here because. You won't let us use Stacey Abrams, David. Yeah. So well, we're I'm, having to yeah, go out and find three people yeah. that we think might could win the race. So I just, that's basically I just what help, I'm doing. Yeah. I can't help but think of the some of his votes in Congress, and I, I just. Mm-hmm. I mean, I agree. He's probably um, among those that could become that could come close to winning or even win, but. I'm not sure that's such a win in my book for me. Well, and and I think there are different times and places to where people are going to be. And and one thing we do have to remember is if somebody says, you know, I'm more comfortable in Bill Clinton's Democratic Party than I am in, say, Bernie Sanders' Democratic Party, even though he's not a Democrat. But at the end of the day, I'm still a Democrat in 2018. We still have to understand those people are still Democrats and have a big enough tent. Um, Yeah, you know what I say about um, that big tent. You know what I say about that big tent, David. Sometimes you got to put those flaps down. Well, (laughs) if you have a minority, if you have a party that's in the minority, you have to grow it. Yeah, you have to. You have to. I mean, if somebody says, "I look at this party," and at the end of the day, I'm still with you. um, They're saying they they look at it and say, "I'm still with with you." you. Well, did he did he vote against did he vote for the Republicans 100 percent of the time or did he vote from 20 percent of the time? <laughs> I have a feeling well, it's his not voting record was more democratic than the It's not amount. It's not quantity. It's quality. He voted for torture. He voted against um, women's access to reproductive rights or reproductive health. So yeah, I mean, it's not just about the number of times he voted in ways that I don't approve of. It's the things that he voted on. Well, and I mean, and here's the thing: he, I mean, he was never my congressman, and I, I didn't really study his voting record. But let's say he voted for um, free and reduced lunches, and let's say he voted pro environment bills. You know what I'm saying? Or let's say he voted to increase the federal minimum wage. I mean, you then, then you say, oh, there's a Republican that would vote against all of those things. So, I mean, I think if you look across the board, there's going to be some Democrats that are more conservative. They're still going to have real Democratic principles that they uh, believe in on a good – because there's so many issues. Um, once again, I didn't voting record. I mean, with a fine-tooth comb, but I have a funny feeling he had to vote with some somewhere with the Democrats or they wouldn't be in the party. 
hit it down what Nathan right, Hill but that's did. Right, my point. My point is not, is not the like I said, it's not the number of times he voted with the Republican. It's the it's the um, matters that he voted along with them. So it's just a difference in, in looking at it. I'm not saying, you know, I voted for him in, twice this year. Um, if he was the candidate, I would probably vote for him. But I would have to. It it wouldn't be my he wouldn't be my first choice. My or in my top ten. That, that let me qualify yeah. um, that. <laughs> hey, hey, but, okay, so David, list. you're next. And I'm talking more yeah. macro. Any candidate, not just John Barra. I'm talking about just people in general. Um, you know, because I, I do think both parties have pushed to the extreme so much, and Republicans more so than Democrats that they're going to leave a whole lot of people out. At some point, that there's going to be a whole bunch of people in the middle that make up the plurality of our country that are going to be um, like, well, I'm not with that bunch of Nazis, and I'm not with that bunch of people either. Where do I go? And um, that's not necessarily a healthy thing for America. Well, let's, let me make, tell you my next nominee, our next possible nominee. And um, this kind of harkens back to somebody I think that has some of the advantages – that Stacey Abrams would have, but may even have some new advantages, and, and that's Nakima Williams, um, a state senator. State, Stacey Abrams was a state house member. Um, really came onto the scene as a party leader and then went to the state uh, senate. And so she kind of, I guess, has traveled the state more than the average state senator would, and, and so she has a, probably a better handle on things. Uh, being with other national groups and what have you, I think would be a good fundraiser. And the fact that she is a mother, I remember when she came onto our show and she talked about that story about her son in Stone Mountain, it was a way to put an illustrative example on something. Um, and some of those voters, like we said, that, you know, Stacey Abrams, or Democrats in general in the state of Georgia, it was all Democrats, did worse among voters, female voters without a college education than male voters without college education. Maybe somebody that could tell stories of motherhood and raising a child. Uh, maybe you know she connects with voters, a few more of those voters, and actually does even a little better, which of course has to be the goal since we didn't win. So that would be my next one, Nakima Williams. Um, Tim, any thoughts? Uh, yeah, actually, I had her down as a possibility. Um, uh, the pre- with the thought that the presidential race and her together combined for a massive turnout in Metro, she could follow essentially the same formula I think that Stacey Abrams uh, followed, but I believe she might could pull it off because there would be, you know, an increased turnout for the presidential election. So I think that's a good choice, don't you, Catherine? I do, and she crossed my mind, but I wasn't sure. I don't know. I For some reason, she didn't make my list. I'm not sure why now that I think about it. Um, but yes, uh, and she also has experience um, statewide in nonprofit work, so she does have not just as a Democratic leader, but also in um, the work that she did for Planned Parenthood took her around the state. So, and yes, she'd be a great fundraiser. She has um, a lot of national um, national attention. She was just uh, there was a feature about her in Fortune magazine or some you know national magazine just last week. So, yeah, great choice. And, Catherine, I'm going to ask you about the the angle of a person that – and it's not fair. I'm just going to tell you it's not fair. But if someone's a mother and can talk about that to other women that are mothers and can connect, does that – do you think that's any kind of advantage of a person that's single or to a person that's single? Um, Probably right, unfortunately. Um, I think there might be some validity to that. On the other hand – there's also the concern about, um, you know, how much time they might have um, to, you know, get the work done. I don't think that's a question for Nakima. I mean, obviously she's like a, a wonder woman when it comes to, you know, making time for everything. She's, I, I don't know. I don't know how she does it. I don't know how she sleeps. I don't know. any. I, I don't understand it, but 
But I do think that sometimes comes up. People are like, well, what, you know, should, you know, some people think that, you know, that, that mothers should be home with their, with their babies or want to be home with their children and might not make the commitment. I don't agree with either of those. I don't agree with either of those ideas that a, a parent is a better candidate or that, you know, should be home with their babies. I, you know, neither of those are, are in my um, my rule book, but I do, do think some people think about that. The other thing about Nakima is that she's very um, she's very personable and approachable, which um, was something that um, I think was a little bit of a hit on Stacey Abrams. I think she worked really hard to change that but I don't think it would be as much of a challenge for Nakima. Yeah. And, you know, you mentioned about having, um, uh, maybe that's why Rich Russell was able to embed himself so quickly in the leadership of the Senate years ago is because he was a single male that lived and ate and did nothing but be a, and that would be an advantage back in for the person we took off the table, Stacey Abrams. Uh, I mean, that's why she was able to register. She could, focus all that extra time and to her benefit. So there's always going to be a plus and a minus in any exactly. aspect of your life. At the end of the day, you just got to live your life. Um, yeah. So Catherine, your next person. Teresa Tomlinson, the mayor of Columbus, Georgia. <coughs> She's talked about running statewide before. I think her term will be up and I don't know if it's, she's term limited or not, but um, she's, Quite a dynamic uh, woman. Uh, has a good grasp of the issues. Um, obviously, being from Columbus, she has some, uh, you know, outside the metro um, experience. So that's my, that's my next, my my last one. Yeah, and, and that's um, a good one. Full, yeah, and in full disclosure, I actually did her website and her campaign the first time she ran for Columbus mayor. So obviously, a fan of her. Uh, was very impressed and in, in when I worked with on that campaign. But, um, Catherine, do you think that, and particularly let's say she got in a primary of two or three candidates, do you think the Democratic Party's become so metro Atlantic centric, unlike the Republican Party in many ways, that not being from metro Atlanta would be a deterrent for some voters? Um, I, I, I suppose that would be something that she would have to deal with but um i mean she did go to emory law school so she must have lived here for some time so she must have i'm sure she has a lot of connections here in atlanta so hopefully that would she would be able to overcome that should she decide to run and be a you know qualified candidate but you know again that's the same thing like is she gonna lose some metro uh uh, uh, momentum, but gain some rural Georgia momentum. Whereas someone from Metro Atlanta, like Scott Holcomb, gonna lose some rural momentum, but gain Metro. I mean, it's all it's it's hard to say exactly how it would pan out, but um, I do think she's quite a dynamic woman, and hopefully would be able to overcome that. Yeah, and, and once again, that's unfair. I mean, as long as you're from somewhere between Dade, Rabin, Seminole, and Glenn um, counties, you know, you're within the state of Georgia, so so that that's all it calls for. So wherever you brought up in Georgia yeah, or but- live in Georgia, learn from that and, and, and bring something to all Georgias now. Uh, Tim, your thoughts on Yeah, but nobody ever said politics Thomas. was fair. Oh. <laughs> no, yeah, that's definitely true, not. Catherine. <laughs> Uh, but you you know what she would have to run on is she just had a terrific run as as the mayor down there she uh she really uh had two very good terms um and and she's got a lot of stuff that she can point to she was strong on crime um she uh had this program um with um, adopting pets, which would be very – who doesn't love their dogs and cats? I mean, I mean, it sounds silly, but who doesn't? 
and and that sort of thing, you know, it, it'll get you votes. Um, she was, I believe, the first female mayor of Columbus, and I believe, you know, they have metro government down there, and I believe that she was the first uh, person to get reelected since metro government came into being down there in Columbus. Um, she um, had um, a thing going called Uptown where she rejuvenated um, or led a renaissance, I guess you would say, of, of the city's downtown area. Uh, she she did a lot of good stuff that she can point to. Uh, it, it, it's a great thing when you can run for an office and point to your record previous office with pride. Not that many can do that. Brother, she <laughs> certainly can. And she's going to be looking for a job. She she is going to be out of office here in, in just a few weeks. Uh, and people have been, as Catherine mentioned, trying to urge her to run either in 2020 or 2022. I think... Uh, what I really think will happen is whatever Stacey Abrams runs for, she'll run for the other thing. Don't y'all? If Stacey Abrams <laughs> yeah. runs, no, seriously, if Stacey Abrams runs for the Senate, she'll wait and run for governor and vice versa. If Abrams decides she wants another shot at governor, I believe that uh, Mayor Tomlinson will come forward and run for the Senate, and I think she'll be a very formidable candidate. Yeah. Tim, uh, that's great analysis. And Catherine, by the way, you did two. We all did two. So everybody's got two. We're going to put a pin in this because we're excited to have our guest on the Kudzu Vine. Welcome for the first time, uh, author of many books, including the one we're going to discuss tonight, Mr. Craig Unger. Welcome, Mr. Unger. Uh, thank you for having me. Oh, yes. Um, well, like I said, we'd love to discuss some of your other books, but really we're going to have to spend the rest of our time on the, your latest book, House of Trump, House of Putin. Um, just kind of tell our listeners, how did you come about uh, wanting to write about this particular book at this particular time? Well, when, when Trump was elected, I was stunned. I've lived here in, here in New York for about 40 years, and those of us <laughs> who knew him, uh, one indication uh, is Manhattan, I, I believe Hillary Clinton won about 90% of the vote. Um, so I wanted to get, uh, you know, as soon as I heard about uh, reports of Russian interference in the election, I started investigating and I wanted to know how, how did this happen? Uh, when did it begin? And uh, I went back uh, more than 35 years and I saw that Russian mafia in New York uh, had been using uh, Trump real estate to launder money. And uh, I, I think this is how it began. This, what, what happened was, to me, uh, perhaps the most uh, successful intelligence operation of our times. You have Russia installing a Russian asset in the White House. And I wanted to see how and why did this begin. And uh, I think it began with the Russian mafia. Uh, laundering money through Trump real estate in the 80s, and that's how uh, the Russians sort of gradually seduced Donald Trump. Yes, I'm I, doing some research for this. I heard you use the year 1984, uh, which Donald Trump was right in the middle of the USFL. Uh, that's the whole reason I'd be in my mindset because I was still a boy, and he had just stolen Herschel Walker away from the Georgia Bulldogs. So, <laughs> um you know, right. I've been suspect of him since the, the early 80s after that move. Um, but right. but one, one more question before I pass it along. Do you think that he somehow sought out the Russian interest at that time financially or the Russian interest, the mafia, um, saw an opening with him? Well, I, I think it may have happened through his lawyer, Roy Cohn. And Roy Cohn was a famous uh, mob lawyer. He represented the Italian-American mafia to the Gambino family and the 
uh, Genovese family, and they had started partnering uh, with the newly arrived Russians here who were coming into Brooklyn and were running the Russian mafia. And I think that's pretty much how it seems to have begun. And Trump could certainly just turn a blind eye and say, I don't care where the money's coming from. <laughs> They're paying top dollar, you know. And uh, that's how he became rich. Uh, and, and they, I mean, what, what you begin to see in my book is a 35-year history of ties between Donald Trump and the Russian mafia. And that Trump Tower is really sort of a cathedral of, for money laundering. And uh, there have been a lot of the Russian mafia has actually lived in Trump Tower. Um, they've owned a lot of the condos and Trump properties all over the world. Uh, and one really important thing to understand is the Russian mafia is very different from our Italian-American mafia. It is a state actor. It works with the government. Yeah. It exists at the pleasure of Vladimir Putin. Uh, so the idea that that Trump is so close to them is really disturbing. Yes. Well, I'm going to have my co-hosts handle some more questions, and I may have one more when they come back around. But, Catherine, questions for Craig Unger. Thank you so much for being on with us. It's really uh, a, a fascinating topic, though also quite chilling when it comes right down to it. Um <laughs> It is. My 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 question is, uh, I think the question that we ask on our show a lot is, um, do these, you know, realizations and um, do they make any difference? Do people, do, will it have an impact on our electorate? Will people learn about these connections and does it cause concern or does it, is it just another, oh, well, you know, we know he's, uh, all politics, politicians are crooks. This is no big difference. Well, I, I, I think the midterm elections were absolutely incredibly important. And in January, the Democrats will take over uh, the House. And uh, I think you're going to be seeing subpoenas flying like crazy. Uh, a lot of the people in this who are not that well-known to most Americans, people like Michael Cohn, who was the president's lawyer, or Felix Sater, uh, who was one of his uh, real estate partners. Uh, these are major figures in this saga, and I think you're going to see them being testifying testify before the House committees. It's going to be a very different kind of investigation now that Democrats uh, are in power. And Mueller, of course, has, a, I think, a few more bombshells to that are going to explode. So I think this thing is, is really uh, about to really unravel. The dam is about to burst. Well, we can only hope that that's the case. <laughs> <laughs> exactly I'm going to turn my, it, I'm going to give it back to, to Tim for some questions. Thank you. you you're, Mr. Unger, thank, thank you for being with us tonight. We appreciate it. And so we come well, to this question. Based on everything that you have seen as an investigative author, is there any way that Donald Trump somehow has not known what was happening around him with the Russian situation? Well, I, I, I can't believe he must have. And I'll tell you just a few little things. One is, if you just simply look at the the money laundering allegations and the number of uh, times it has happened, it would be one thing if it only had happened uh, five or six times. But there, uh, one investigation shows at least 1,300 Trump condos in the United States alone uh, appear to have been uh, uh, part of money laundering. That is, these were all cash transactions through anonymous shell companies. So if he doesn't know what he's doing there, that's mighty mighty coincidence for it to happen 1,300 times in a row. Uh, and there's just, uh, you know, all the meetings in the, the June 2016 meeting, the, uh, he has said again and again that he had no connections to Russia. In my book, I found at least 59 people with whom, through whom he has direct connections to Russia. Uh, many of these people are in the Russian mafia. I mean, it, it, these were high. These are people on the FBI's most wanted list. He's been laundering money for them for years. 
Um, and I just think you see a level of corruption that is uh, astonishing. Mm-hmm. All right, let's go all the way to the other end of this thing. If he knows everything that's been going on, if if if, if all of this turns out to be true, is it safe to say then that, well, Donald Trump is a Russian asset? It, it, would it be safe to say that? Well, yes, I, I believe it is. And and I think you can see some of the things that are happening right now. It, it is not that widely reported now, but Russian is encircling Ukraine. They want to they retake Ukraine. And what is Donald Trump doing about it? Uh, he started attacking NATO, uh, at least in his tweets. He's done nothing about it. Uh, he, he, he wants to lift all the sanctions on, for Putin's oligarchs. He's doing, in so far as he can, about everything he can to aid Vladimir Putin. Putin wants to destroy the Western alliance, the relationship between Europe and the United States. We've been allies for 70 years. It's been a very, very productive alliance economically, militarily. Um, he wants to destroy that alliance, and, and Donald Trump is uh, doing his bidding. Mm-hmm. And and in your investigative research for this book, which goes back, as David mentioned, quite a few years, did you find yourself uncovering more questions or answers? Which one would you say <laughs> you would have the most of now? Well, I still have an awful lot of unanswered questions, that's for sure. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. in general, though, I, I think I started seeing uh, – that the history of the last 20 years is kind of different than I had thought, and that we, we always mm-hmm. talk how the West won the, uh, the Cold War. And certainly the Soviet Union crumbled. There's no question about that. But what you see through this is that uh, a lot of people in the KGB, Russian intelligence, was uh, sort of in hibernation for many years, and they came back, and, and they're coming back with a vengeance now. And it's a different kind of warfare. This is a, a war without bombs or bullets or boots on the ground. It instead uses cyber warfare. It uses uh, disinformation in the media, fake news, uh, you know, sort of robo uh, 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 email stuff. Um, and th- they've uh, been very, very effective. Mm-hmm. And one one final question. In Donald Trump's case, his whole persona, at least his public persona, seems to have been based on the acquisition of money and making the deal. Is that his great weakness that the Russians have exploited? I, yeah, I think it is in a lot of ways. I mean, he, you know, it's it's interesting. And in, in they first came to him in 1986. They came to him, and it was very unusual because the ambassador uh, to the uh, United Nations walked up to Trump Tower, which was newly o- opened then, and said, "What a marvelous building! Uh, you should uh, build one in in uh, Moscow." And they started flattering him, and uh, in when I, I interviewed a, a former KGB general, General Oleg Kalugin, who's head of counterintelligence for the KGB, and he remembers that visit and says he believes uh, the KGB had compromise on Trump from that way back in 1987. Uh, and uh, that's one of the things I report in my book. So they've been sort of going after Trump for quite some time. And uh, it was little noted, but Trump actually tried to run for president as early as 1988, just after his first visit to Moscow. Wow. That is fascinating. And with that, I'm going to send it back to David. David? All right. Well, Mr. Unger, two questions. And that kind of answered one of mine was kind of when did the Russians kind of switch over from financial to possibly political? But that brings up a new question. Between 1988 and today, you know, Donald Trump's been in, in cheesy-looking um, uh, Pizza Hut ads. 
He was on The Celebrity Apprentice. He's done weird parts in movies. He was in Bobby Lashley's Corner against Umaga and WrestleMania, whichever number. And Stone Cold Steve Austin gave him the stunner. What in the world were the Russians <laughs> thinking uh, when all this nonsense is going on about their political asset at this point? Right. Uh, well, I, I don't know exactly what they were thinking. I mean, he was to say he he was the, the Russians had in the past cultivated powerful uh, politi- uh, business people in the United States, going back to Armand Hammer, an oil executive who was quite friendly back in the the days of the Soviet Union. So it's not unusual for them to go after uh, uh, a big businessman. Trump is, uh, you know, a, he's his own character. He's this weird. Uh, sort of cartoon-like character who, uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, he, he's very much like pro wrestling, right? I mean, uh, you know, uh, I don't know. It, I get some people, it's part of the culture. And I think he has that kind of appeal, um, which is very much against, I mean, it, it, to think of that kind of person who's so undisciplined as an intelligence asset is, very weird. I mean, it just doesn't, that does not compute. But I think the, the Russians had businesses going in Trump Tower, one called Bayrock Group, was a real estate development company. And they were working with Trump, um, they're developing properties, licensing his name. And you saw through them a lot of uh, uh, money being laundered from in Russian flight capital and from the Russian mafia. Uh, both in in funding the development buildings that could were four or five hundred million dollars each, but also in selling the luxury condos once they were completed. Yes, and one more question I had for you just about the this topic is um, you've uncovered an incredible amount of research uh, through this book, through some articles, I believe, leading up to it. Do you have any idea if the Mueller, Robert Mueller, and the Mueller team? have, um, you know, read your book and, and tried to investigate further in their investigation. Right. Well, I, I do know the, the House Intelligence Committee has, so that may be coming up in the in January in some of the hearings. As for Mueller, a, a, lot, you know, a fair amount of my stuff comes from the FBI, so they clearly have that all of that material. Uh, everything I hear about Mueller is that, he is the most disciplined um, patriot you can imagine, who is working relentlessly. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it's very impressive watching his operation when you see the kind of discipline, and it's had no leaks whatsoever so far uh, compared to the White House at the same time. Yes. Well, I'm assuming you'll continue to do research on this topic. Uh, is that correct? Absolutely. Uh, this isn't over yet. How it will unravel is anybody's guess, but I think uh, the next year it's going to be uh, – I think the dam is about to break. I think there's going to be a lot of news day after day after day. Yes. Well, um, well th- with that in mind, well, f- first before we let you go, um, in addition to you know purchasing your books and reading them, uh, where are some other people, uh, places people can read your work or your thoughts on either social media or newspaper articles or what have you? Right. Well, I'm starting to tweet uh, a fair amount, so I'd probably do that three or four things a day. And, and when I have new articles, uh, and my, my Twitter name is at Craig Unger, one, uh, one word. Uh, and so when I, I write new articles, I generally tweet them. Sometimes I just comment on what's going on in the news. Yes. Well, um, this was super informative just as the rest of your work is. And so uh, <laughs> if possible, maybe somewhere down the line, uh, there'll be some more research we can have you on. And also you have other books. I mean, your book about Carl Rove, your book about uh, female voters um, would be fascinating, I'm sure, to everybody out there listening to us. Right, absolutely. Uh, no, I'd love to come back, uh, and thank you for having me. Thank, thank you very you much for being on with us. Yes, all right. Uh, thank you again, Craig Unger, just a fascinating political investigative journalist. Um, just lucky to have him on the show. Um, go ahead, if you you know, 
purchase his book, uh, House of uh, Trump, House of Putin, wherever books are sold online, all those things. And he has other books. Seriously, I looked at some of the topics, and I was like, uh, particularly those two grabbed me because you know female voters. That that's relevant almost any time. And to me, Karl Rove is one of the more interesting political operatives in the past 25 years. And you, you got to think that um, as soon as the era of Trump is over, uh, he may have another candidate uh, more in the regular Republican vein. So I, I thought that was interesting too. Guys, we're right at the end of the show, but we still have two more candidates to go. Do y'all want to put a pin in that till next week, or do you want to go ahead and do two more, Catherine, Tim? Uh, we are running way over, so we probably ought to go yeah, ahead yeah. and sign it off. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah, now, let's that's okay. We'll I, talk to you next week. Yeah, let's put a pin. We can do that. We, that, that was, we're just lucky to have Mr. Unger call in and, and get that interview in its totality. So until next week, been the Kudzu Vine. Good night. Good night, y'all. Good night, everybody. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice.